Welcome to another episode of Tell Me About It With Jaquil. Uh, today we are joined by a special guest, Ariana, aka Ari, aka Dr. President. Um, and today we'll be highlighting just student voices. Um, this is a part of a five-part series where I will be talking with current undergrad students about their experiences in the classroom, um, particularly as it pertains to how race, racism, culture all play a part in that academic journey. Um, uh, just a quick backstory on why I call uh, Ari Dr. President. Um, it's not really a fancy story. It's other than um, I had a classroom assignment and I needed to come up with an anonymous name so that confidentiality was protected. Um, and so I thought of the two things that I feel like fit her the most and doctor being one of them because I'm sure that there's be one day where there would be a doctor tied to her name. Um, and then president, because I feel like she'll be the president of something. Um, I don't know what it's gonna be, but she will be the president of something. Um, but that's how Dr. President came about. Um, so Ari, hello, welcome. Uh, and just like I do with most guests, um, please uh, talk about an experience that you have had with none other than me. Okay, well, basically I met you when I was a resident at the dorms you were working at as an RC. And I think we clicked pretty well um, right off the bat just talking about social justice. I don't even know when that started, honestly, but I will say, I know I know we had good click because like, I can't remember any other RCs from when I was a resident, mm. at, like right off the top of my head, maybe if I think about it. But obviously you stuck out um, in my freshman year college experience and it lasted enough to make me want to be an RA. I brought you to a social justice event as a speaker when I was an RA. Um, obviously we worked on the Beachside College Council together. Uh, so we've worked together a lot. We've talked a billion times about everything in the world, <laughs> everything that makes us mad. <laughs> so I think, I think I left high school um, very passionate about social justice and I was really concerned of how to keep talking about that or implement that in college just because I was moving away from home. I didn't know anyone. So I was like, it's probably not a strong thing for me to start off with making friends. Um, but it ended up working out great. <laughs> and you you gave me the room to start having those conversations and keep those conversations um, and have them in a professional way. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> until I started seeing how you handled yourself as an RC and I was like, oh, that's allowed. <laughs> or kind of. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's one thing that sticks out um, is um, I did meet Ari when uh, she was a resident, um, an involved resident at that. Um, I didn't have a lot of, I think, residents who I could count on that would actually show up to events for my, that my RAs were putting on, but I knew that Ari and her group of friends, uh, <laughs> shout out to, you know, the big group, you know, uh, <laughs> Joseph, Reggie, you know, everybody. Oh. <laughs> all the all the group um but um they they showed up to a lot of the events that my ras would put on and stuff like that and i appreciate that and then ari was a part of a college council um and to this day i still think that ari should have probably had a bigger role in college council um but you know she wanted to be just a lowly little representative um but um i would say that one of the experiences that did stick out uh to me with ari is um, she was probably one of the only residents that I could talk to social justice, talk to about social justice issues, uh, mainly because I would say that uh, my 
Mm, my level of understanding of social justice issues is a little bit higher than the normal person, I would say, because I'm always reading, I'm always trying to figure out things and stuff like that. And I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about these issues, or at least people who kind of tried to understand them. I think Ari was very open to these conversations. Um, and then also had her own like background in social justice and, and community like work. And so we clicked very, very quickly. But I would say a very funny moment, I think, <laughs> that I that I can remember uh, being the advisor of College Council. And I think they had frustrated me one time. And I literally wrote on the whiteboard, what the fuck are we going doing? on? <laughs> I, I, was, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Because I think that was, I think, the moment they realized that I'm probably not the traditional professional um, or the traditional advisor because I really just wanted them to kind of succeed and want them to really communicate as a group and stuff like that. But that's my experiences with Ari. I haven't checked in with her in a long time um, and it seems like forever, but I'm glad I'm getting to check in at least in this space and stuff like that. Um, but again, we will be talking about her student experience and a little bit about my student experience as it relates to these conversations around race, culture and racism and just the social climate, especially what it's like now with yeah. everything going on from the shit show of the election that we just had to the pandemic that we're continuously experiencing and navigating poorly as a country, as well as, you know, the constant threat of police brutality and poor criminal justice system that we do have in this society. Um, and so um, I wanna start by asking just like, um, what has your college experience been like in general? Just like, have you enjoyed it? Have you, is there ups and downs? Have you figured out things about yourself? Did you have your aha moment yet? Because you're about to graduate soon. So. <laughs> <laughs> you're almost out of there. So like, how has it been for you? I'd say overall, I've enjoyed it. I've been very thankful for that. Um, I think the pandemic has shown me just how much I liked it uh, mm. now that I'm so disconnected from it. Uh, but it's definitely had its ups and downs. I've, not to sound super cliche, but I've learned a lot about myself about others, about my interests. I don't know about an aha moment. Um, not, I'm not 100% sure if that any of those types of moments have come from school or just what's happening while I'm in school, like just all around or internships type thing. Because um, I, I feel most myself when I'm working and working in things that I care about. Okay. Uh, I like my courses and I like my professors and stuff. Um, but I don't know if it's like, I don't know, I have a hard time identifying. I'm super proud to go to Long Beach and I love Long Beach. I just sometimes have a hard time identifying myself as part of Long Beach just because I'm not in any clubs or orgs on the campus. Um, so I identify myself more with like my courses and just being a general student, but sometimes I feel a little disconnected in that way. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, ups and downs. It's a little crazy studying political science and studying international studies uh, at a time like this. Um, you know, your courses, the coursework that you do, a lot of my assignments are literally to like solve a world problem, <laughs> solve a problem that global leaders can't solve, but I'll do it in my, in my essay, <laughs> like polystat 400 or something. <laughs> um, yeah, overall, I'd say it's been positive. I think it's just as it's very natural ups and downs. Um, and right now, 
like I said, it's been a super weird time um, to be an undergrad. And like I said, specifically what I'm studying, because, you know, now I'm being asked, I have, I have two more semesters left. And, you know, now I'm being asked, like, what are you doing next? I don't know what the world is going to need a year from now, because it changes so much. Everything changes so much. Um, so it really depends. Yeah. Well, I think um, you've touched on some things like the world is is forever changing and it, it's hard to answer that question more and more, especially now me being uh, a professor and a high school kind of like educator and talking to my students who are literally applying to college now. It's so hard to tell them like, you know, explore what you want to do in your life and then, you know, just go for it. Because I'm just like, shit, like you could be a one major one moment and be like there's not there's not going to be a need for it when I graduate like yeah and it's it's tough especially because I I will say one thing about American college culture that I don't really like I don't understand it was really shocking to me when I first got to university is people identify as their majors mm -hmm. like that is all who they are if you are an engineering student you consider yourself an engineer mm -hmm. um, if you study you know liberal arts, that's your whole thing, is like you're an English major, your whole thing is you're a business major. Personally don't agree with that. And I think that's what kind of traps Americans, you know, when we all know that when you graduate undergrad, there's like a small chance you find a job, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because we're putting students in these really, really tight little concentrations. And then we're not encouraging, you know, like especially now with the threat of GEs being taken away, we're not the most well-rounded graduates, I don't think, but I also think that people, it's so shoved down your throat where it's like, if you have this degree, this is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. and I, I, I think ideally, yeah, but <laughs> that's not the case. Like, I just think of like my mom's undergraduate degree is in advertising and she's an auditor now. <laughs> like, that's not what she does yeah. at all, you know? Um, and I think it's really common. And I think it's okay if that happens to people. She loves what she does now. Like. I think that's one challenge of being an American college student is that we're so constrained in these little bubbles. And then I also think it makes people not so accountable. Like, you know, a social justice issue will be happening, like a, the civil rights movement that started this summer, like, or it's been brewing for a while. World, biggest civil rights movement the world has ever seen. And you start turning to your peers and you're like, hey, you should probably educate yourself a little more. Or what do you think about what's going on? They're like, I don't know. I'm just I'm just like a business major or something like that. You're like, okay. <laughs> and then as a human, what is your response to this? <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's one big thing that I, uh, I've noticed as well as have been trying to facilitate differently with, with my students or with the people who I'm around have been just like, and my coworkers too, like, I'll be like, I know, you know, you teach in the English department and you don't think social justice is something that should be brought up in the classroom or in your curriculum, but like even small steps towards that is like, how about, you know, diversifying the authors or <laughs> how about, you know, creating assignments that force them to research some stuff. Cause especially when the pandemic happened and everybody moved to U uh, Zoom University, everybody was stuck on social media and everybody was stuck on Google. And so it was like, oh, what? Is police brutality really happening? Google it. Oh, there's thousands of videos. Google it. There's thousands of things. And so many people are so stuck in those bubbles. I've literally had so many conversations with people about like, 
now you're starting to care about certain social justice issues when they've been issues for a really long time. And the only reason why you care is because you can't go outside. Like, and, and so there's been all of these different, these things happening where I'm like, so I've been telling y'all that black people have been dying for a good decade now. And y'all are just like, can you believe that this is happening? <laughs> Yes, yes, I can. I can believe that it's happening. It's been happening. And there's like two sides to that card, right? Where it's like frustration of how people could be so naive or so blind or, you know, choosing to ignore. But then there's this other side of the card where it's like, I don't want to applaud a fish for swimming, but I'm thankful that some people are educating themselves now. Like I'm seeing some improvement. It's like, yes, I'm so grateful you're doing it now. It's really late. Yeah. Start. <laughs> So I think that's been a big thing for me recently too, is especially like June, July, I was so mad, like all the time. And you should be, honestly, I've been mad all of 2020, <laughs> but like, it was like a really high concentration point of just being so, so mad. And then at the same time, trying to be like, okay, if I'm just yelling at everyone, if I'm approaching everyone with anger, that's not going to fix the situation. It's not going to change them. It's not going to change their mind, but also I have a right to be mad. <laughs> I think that's been a big challenge for me in 2020 something I'm working on of like how to approach people about these things that they should have been cared, caring about like but at the same time like okay you did it yay yeah um I have a lot of different uh I don't want to say resources because I don't want to talk to you like I'm like you're in my <laughs> advising appointment no, but, okay um, I do have like a lot of different like methods, especially because I have embedded myself in this social justice work. And a part of that is understanding that there are people who are going to be late to this whole journey of caring about people. There's going to be some people who just don't want to care. And then you're going to have people who've cared from the beginning. And then within that, you also have more dynamics of that. It's like you have people who care because there's, their identities are the ones that are being tacked. They're the marginalized identities. And then you have the other people who care because they're the privileged identities who can see how their privilege comes into play. So I figured out a couple of methods for dealing with like people who have just started the social justice journey while like also trying to be like, all right, I'm happy for you. Yay, yay, yay. Now keep going. And so yeah. I always ask them the question um, and it sounds very extreme. I always ask people when they start the social justice work, are you ready to die? And then they're like, what? And I'm like, are you ready to die for this? And they're just all like, oh no, I'm like, okay, then now I'm gauging your level of engagement with social justice stuff because I'm ready to die because <laughs> I'm already getting attacked and stuff. Like by me not caring about social justice issues and things that are directly impacting my identities, particularly the identity of me being a black male, like I can die if I'm not aware. Like that is a very real- I have the privilege to not care. Like, like, yeah. I could literally walk outside and piss off the wrong officer for not listening and be shot. And, and so I'm telling people like, you gotta gauge your, your level of engagement. <laughs> like, cause if you come into a social justice circle, like I just, wanna, I just wanna help, I just wanna learn, I wanna do that. And you don't create no boundaries for yourself. You're gonna be put in a, a situation where either you, the person who's trying to educate someone is like putting in all this mental labor for someone who may not get it at the end of the day, or <laughs> is gonna be the person who's receiving the education being overwhelmed, like this is too much for me to deal with. And at the end of the day, 
if you're that person who's being educated with that privilege, you have the opportunity, the right, and you have the ability to literally just shut down and not do anything about it because you, your privilege protects you. So a lot of it is like gauging those boundaries, gauging how much work you're willing to do, and then staying within that. Like, oh, no, no, don't overwhelm yourself. Keep doing what you're doing, right? And get other people like you on board so it comes to a point where you can start lessening and lessening the amount of energy that is like overwhelming you when it comes to these issues, because then you can slowly embed yourself into social justice work if you truly care. Like, because if you just don't care, if you just wanna be like, hey, give me a ally sticker and I wanna put my pronouns in my email and now we're good. And it's all like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Like you can't just say you're an ally and ignore people, right? And that's one of the things, one of the issues that I've really developed over this year, 2020 taught me that I hate the word ally. Like, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's like people use it as this like superhero cape to like prevent other people from like- Your protection, yeah. You know, like, oh no, no, I'm an ally. My black friend over there knows that I'm an ally, go ask. And I'm like, I'm not gonna ask somebody if you're an ally. I'm not gonna tell you you're an ally because you care about people. I'm gonna give you a high five and like now continue calling out your family members, continue calling out your friends, continue doing all these different things and don't only do it when I'm watching. Like that's where people get this ally from. They're just like, is he watching? Hey, don't say the N word. And I'm like, oh my God, you're an ally. Thank you. No. Like, because it had like good intention at the root. Yeah. I think allyship does have good intentions. I think people who call themselves allies for the most part are trying. I think the only thing is like, like you said, it's people do treat it like a superhero cape. They do feel untouchable with it. And I think people who call themselves allies can remove a lot of accountability. Because mm -hmm. uh, like when I say there's good intention, like obviously, okay, so like I'm not a member of the LGBTQ plus community. I would like to think I'm an ally for the community, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I would identify as an ally because yeah. it's not an identifier. Mm -hmm. It's not. And if we're not on this equal playing field, then if I'm like, well, you're gay and I'm an ally. Being gay is an, is a whole, <laughs> it's a sexuality, it's uh, oppressive. Like it's something that you will be oppressed for. It's something you have to deal with. It's something extremely challenging. It's more than a label. Like, so it's not fair to be like, well, that's your identity and mine is ally. Like that's not a thing. Yeah. That, that's what sucks about it. Like, I think you, you're right in that like 2020, I think has kind of exposed that. Yeah. But first of all, it's not enough to just call yourself an ally. That's the thing. That's I think that's the big thing is. And I think it's it's almost I don't think people realize it's a way of othering. Yep. Like for example, when you're talking about um, communities, your community is comprised of every type of person. Especially like we're we obviously both live in California. We're talking about the California standpoint. Well, like I, right now I am. <laughs> There's all sorts of people in your community. So when you start talking, yes, there are people in your community, within other communities, within the LGBTQ community, the black community, the Asian community, but you are also part of a larger community. Mm -hmm. So when you start talking about allyship, it's a big like, mm, they're not with me though, or I'm not with them in their struggle. It's like, okay, like for example, with the black community, I'm not black. I will never know what it feels like to be black. I can only know what I read, what I'm told, what I see, that's it, right? But I wouldn't, it like struggles that affect the black community affect the black community, but I should make it my problem too. 
right to deal with like I, I hope that doesn't sound I hope that doesn't come off wrong it's not to say oh I'm struggling in any way no but I mean gonna be an empathetic person and be a quote unquote I guess that's what allies think they're doing when they say they're being an ally or maybe that's what they're not willing to do and that's why they call themselves an ally yeah but it's not you can't just say well that's a problem for the black community I think that's what I'm trying to say you can't just say well that's their problem you know make it an issue that you confront as well make it an issue that you challenge for example like to give background to anyone who doesn't know i anyone who might be watching i obviously am caucasian of some sort um so my mom's family is colombian and caucasian american basically my mom's an immigrant from colombia and then my dad is from a refugee from afghanistan so on my mom's side i'm 50 percent white racially because they are white latinos and then they are white Americans. Um, and then racially, I guess, depends on who you ask. I could be 100% Caucasian because Middle Eastern people, they're kind of in the middle. I identify more so with Asian. Um, so ethnically, I got a lot going on. Racially, it's confusing, but I have a ton of white privilege and that I am white. And then, you know, part of me is white passing, I guess. Um, so when we talk about, you know, communities and allyship and everything like that, First of all, there's some communities people don't even give me credit for being part of. They don't think I am. Um, but like I said, when we're talking about, like for specifically, when we're talking about BLM and like Black Lives Matter and the idea of the Black community and supporting the Black community, I think that's what it comes down to. It's like actually supporting. And like you said, die for it. Hands down, I would. Hands down, no question. And I think that's, I think that's a big part of what people don't understand about being an ally. I really think they think they can donate to... BLM. I think they think they can go to a protest. I think they can go post a black square on their Instagram. Mm. That's an ally. Mm -hmm. A lot more to it. <laughs> but I think you bring up a lot of good things, right? Um, I'm sorry, I ramble. No, no, it's good. Where is where do I start? Okay, so the big thing, right? Is, and this is for me. This is how I distinguish it, right? being yeah. a black man, right? Particularly for people who want to support black communities, right? Please, no. I, I have, I tell them, there's a lot of things you have to realize, right? Right. One, support and allyship are two totally different things. Yeah. Right? Allyship goes beyond the support that you think you can provide. Allyship <laughs> goes to the support that they need, that a community asked for, right? Yeah, like I'm coming to you like, we need this type of support from you. I don't yes. need you to go around <laughs> to be like, I like black people, uh, like stop cultural appropriating. I don't need you to do that. This is the way that I need support. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes I need you to call out your friends. Sometimes I don't. Right. And so when it comes to support, that's what support looks like. Support is a constant, like continual act that isn't just based in one avenue. It's that not you a one-off. Like, you don't get to just put a, again, you don't get to put a black square and be like, ally, thank you. <laughs> thank All you. Problems. Everybody's going to ignore the fact that I had said some racist stuff last week, but I got a black square. And so you you get all of these different things, right? And and then it, it creates more conversations. And I'm just like, when you are a true ally, mm -hmm. you are not doing it for the title of ally. Like mm -hmm. if I called you an ally, it shouldn't make you feel like you are now 
the spokesperson for every outsider who supports the community. And that's what people feel like. They use ally as a defense mechanism when ally shouldn't be a defense mechanism for when people call you out for, for your toxic behavior. We, people are allowed to call you out for your toxic behavior. People call you out all the goddamn time and I welcome it. Like I know that I have identities that hold some privilege and because of it, I say shit or I do shit that may be oppressive in nature. And if you're not calling me out, I won't know that I'm doing it because that's how privilege works. It sometimes blinds you of things, but you have to work towards being more aware of these things. Like one thing that I, I really learned was like, you know, I have a tendency to talk over people. And a lot of that is because I'm a man and I'm like, no, my, my voice is supposed to be the most important in the room. And sometimes I have to just shut the hell up. Like, and that's literally what I've learned is just, hey, Jaquil, shut the fuck up and just wait. And then look around, gauge it. I'm gonna talk now, is that okay? Yeah. Right. And so um, that's, a, I think, a very important thing that you bring up. Um, and then you bring up being like racially ambiguous, right? And because, you know, you clearly, and you've stated that you are racially ambiguous, I think that a lot of people probably don't think that you experience certain things that you probably experience or they probably assume that you experience other things that you have no idea because you've never experienced them. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, it, and it comes with the territory because I remember um, just like back before, like I kind of like knew who you were as like, you know, holistically, right? And understanding just like part of your identity, right? It's, it's just your last name, right? Your last name gave me a lot to go off of, That's right? That's my only indicator, yeah. Like, and so it's like, if if people don't really take into context like who you are as an individual, they're gonna say you're white. Like oh, yeah. there's been a lot of conversations yeah. that I have had with people. Like they would try to like, and I don't think I've ever talked to you about this, but like every once in a while, when I was talking to like the other housing staff, they would ask me about you. Um, and they're like, do you think she's going to apply? And I'm like, who are you talking about? They're like the white girl on your uh, college council. <laughs> and I'm like, I got one white girl and she's Jewish. <laughs> like, so I was like, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. And then they're like, her. And I'm like, oh, Ari's, I guess white, but like, that's not how I would identify her as like, if I was to describe her to someone, like. And it's fine if you do, it's fine if you don't. Like, I think, um, being ethnically or racially ambiguous, um, I think your credibility really fluctuates um, depending on who you're talking to, yeah. obviously. Um, so I, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've met who, um, and they have every right to do this, specifically people of color. Um, they'll say the first time they met me and they heard me talk about anything social justice their first thought was, why is this white girl talking? Hmm. It's fine. <laughs> Joey told me that. Joey told me the first time I walked into a room, they were like, <laughs> and that's fine. I, I think that's, and I think um, that happened a couple times as an RA. And uh, these aren't situations in which I was speaking over people of color or anything like that. Literally just my presence in a room. Yeah. And that's fine. That's completely fine. Um, because it's not their fault how they perceive me, and it's not my fault how I'm perceived um just based on how I look and everything um so in that sense I'm sure my credibility on first impressions can be very confusing for people I think it's also really annoying for some people that I'm constantly saying what I am mm -hmm. uh, but it's just so that people understand that I'm not trying to come from any sort of 
you know, like white savior or American outsider. Like I, I use American a lot as a word to describe other people, even though I was born in the US um, because I forget I was born in the US because my family wasn't. <laughs> so we're constantly talking about Americans this, Americans that, Americans this, like we're not. <laughs> um, but I think in that sense, like I think there's also times where I'm obviously given way more credibility than I should have um, because of white privilege. Uh, as if my voice matters more in certain situations that it definitely doesn't. Um, so it's a balance though. And I think one thing you talked about when you were talking about people learning, um, especially times right now, like people learning what they, like how to continuously support and big part is that it's continuous. And I really like that you mentioned that it's like what's needed and what's asked for. Cause I think that's a huge part of community engagement and social justice that people don't realize is you don't look at a problem and think I'm going to solve it. Mm -hmm. Let me go solve it and do it my way. No, <laughs> ask the community in need. That's something that I learned in a community program I did in high school. And like, I remember we had to watch this Ted talk about these Italian scientists who went to Zimbabwe and they saw these farmers were having a hard time because their tomato crops kept getting eaten and like destroyed and so the Italian farmer they kept getting destroyed and the Italian farmers their idea was oh maybe it's the the plants like the the soil it's not good for these tomatoes we're going to change what plants we put here we'll just give them different crops they don't need to do tomatoes anymore mm -hmm. so they started planting all these seeds doing this huge community project um, or charity project essentially and they grew these crops and again they were all gone and destroyed and they assumed it was some sort of bug or something and they started talking to the locals which you should have done beforehand and they found out that uh, hippos were eating all the crops so it didn't matter what you planted there hippos were going to eat it mm -hmm. and that was one of those things where they spent a ton of money on this project on this farming project and they were convinced that they had saved the people of this rural area of Zimbabwe without ever asking them what they needed or, you know, the shoe company Tom's has come under fire for sending shoes to rural communities all over the world. Tons and tons and tons of shoes when that's the last thing they need. Mm -hmm. They might have a lot of shoes, but they don't have something else. Um, and this is obviously on the international scale, but it's something that like really stuck with me um, after learning these lessons. It was like, oh, my God, yeah. how could I know what someone needs without talking to them? How could I know if I'm not part of that community what they need? <laughs> like, no, why? You know, and you like you alluded to that perfectly and I think that's one thing people really need to keep in mind right now and another thing is I feel like there's a quote about it but I don't remember it correctly so I'm not going to say a quote I'll paraphrase a little bit um but right now is a time of learning and a lot of unlearning for people and specifically people who are interested in moving towards abolition mm -hmm. it's painful if you're doing it right it's painful because mm -hmm. you're being you're going to learn that you have a lot of flaws and you have a lot of things that you've probably been doing that hurt other communities that you don't even realize like you know you've you've been approached about speaking over women and I'm sure that didn't feel good the first time someone told you that I'm well, sure I ignored it but that's okay, <laughs> okay. But <laughs> when you started to think about it I'm sure it was a little like ah oh, damn I didn't mean to do that or like oh, I hope I didn't upset anyone you I'm, we've all had things like that I'm not going to excuse people who have like weird like, Nazi histories. I think that's another thing that's coming up right now where people are like, oh my God, I used to be extremely racist. 
okay, that's not okay anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like microaggressions, you might not have known that you were doing, um, things that you thought were helpful, but were actually really destructive, times you've spoken over people or communities. It's gonna hurt if you're moving towards these things and educating yourself properly, it's gonna hurt. You're gonna have to do a lot of reflection. Yeah. But if it's hurting, you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's, and that's the thing that I tell people too, still like, um, I don't necessarily use the word unlearning, um, just because I think like, it's like, I think what people have to do is they have to, they have to realize that they have to beat some of these patterns and thought processes to the point where they have amnesia about them because it's hard to like unlearn something. It's like, once you learn how to ride a bike, it's not like you're gonna forget one day, like 10 years down the line, you're like, oh, it's still a bike. And like, you know, <laughs> but it's like, you have to beat yourself into thinking that, that this bike is no longer functioning the same way. And, and so um, when it comes to like these like patterns, these behavior patterns or, or people's toxic traits and stuff, it, it's going to hurt. Like, like you said, it will, it's going to fucking hurt. Right. And if it doesn't hurt, it means you really aren't doing it right or that you don't care enough about whatever behavior pattern that you're trying to, to solve. And so I learned this um, like, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm so aware of my toxic behavior patterns as it affects those who are women or those who identify as women. I understand like all of my other privileges being, you know, heterosexual passing and all these different things. And then I'm like, but damn, I don't know shit when it comes to like the like communities like those who are disabled like I don't know shit right and so it's like educating myself on that because it's just small things that I didn't realize that I was doing and like it's not like people from that community or even people in general will approach me because I guess I'm intimidating but like I had to learn like damn like when I'm doing the things that I'm doing whether that's presentations videos poems and all this stuff there's a lot of things that I have to consider, like closed captions and all these different things where I, where I had never used to do. And I was like, oh, damn, like I'm not reaching an entire community because I'm being lazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's good. Yeah. I'm using my privileges in that way, like where I just don't have to. And so I've been trying more and more to like figure out ways where I can try to embed like these things into my day to day life. So that I'm not like disenfranchising anyone or you like unwillingly or unknowingly using my privilege. Um, but I do also understand that when you are engaged in that work, it's sometimes hard to, to know, uh, engage it or to understand what your privilege is allowing you to do. Um, and so I, you just have to be like very cautious and stuff like that. And some people don't want to put in that effort. Um, but all that, you know, to say, um, shit happens, like this shit is real. Um, and like the way that we engage in social justice work is really dependent on our effort and like how we view like other communities that we're not a part of and how we can help those communities and support those communities without getting that, you know, white savior mentality of like, I'm just gonna put on my superhero cape and swing through and save the whole entire community. And so I've been very fortunate to be able to educate myself to the point where I've been able to educate myself and also have the platforms that I do have to, to talk to people about these things. And so um, one thing is like telling people that like, if you don't belong in a, like if you don't, if you're not from a community, right? I'm from the black community, right? If you're not a part of the black community, you cannot 
Like you cannot save the black community. <laughs> it is impossible for you to save the black community. You can support the black community. You can't change the black community. Change happens within the people who live in that community. You can support us to help us get to change, but you can't change the community. And that's one thing I've been trying to tell people and reiterate, like, you can't say like, oh, I helped change this community. No, you didn't. You support <laughs> You planted some trees, you, you, you know, took some graffiti off of walls and donated some money. You supported. You can't change a community. Only the people within that community can change that community. Um, which brings me to my next point. Um, so you you touched on you know being racially ambiguous and stuff like that, and um, and I and I know that like from my perspective, being you know someone who's not racially ambiguous, like I walk into a room and people know exactly <laughs> what the hell I am and who I am. Um, our our education experiences will be drastically different because of it. Um, again, also. I was an undergrad probably when you were like a freshman in high school, so it was a little different. But um, how has your classroom experience been just with you know the identities you hold in regards to race? So what I mean to rephrase, just so that question doesn't seem so convoluted, is have there been moments in the classroom where you talked about race as you know as a class as a whole? Um, and what, what was that like coming from your perspective? I think I'm lucky in that, um, in what I study, like I mentioned, I'm an international studies major and a political science major. Um, social issues, race, um, gender, sexuality, it comes up a lot in my classes. So that's pretty regular discourse, um, which I wish it was in more departments and universities. I don't know why it's not constantly talked about, like literally at all times, um, but I feel like I have a variety of experiences um, within my departments and I think within Long Beach State in general. First of all, like for example, there's not a lot of black students when you look at how black Long Beach is and then comparison to CSU Long Beach, it doesn't, the math isn't mathing, you know, it does not make sense. <laughs> so it's not uncommon for me to have a class with no black people, with one or two black people. Um, and what happens is obviously when we talk about race specific, specifically in the United States, it's most often talked about like there are two races in the US and almost nothing else. And you know, you get used to that. Um, but when those conversations are happening and then there's no black people in the room, there are times where people can definitely feel comfortable overstepping or even if there's no, even if there are black people in the room or whatever, if they look around and see like a white majority or they think they see a white majority, um, people can cross the line. I think with my professors and stuff, I don't think I've had many problematic professors when it comes to race, but that's my, that's from my <laughs> perspective. Um, but students, yes, very problematic students in my courses. Um, everyone knows the stereotype of a white political science male. Yeah, it's true, um, but it's not just white men, <laughs> all poli sci men. Um, but I think in that sense, I think when we talk about me being racially ambiguous, time and time again in my life, people have th thought they're in a safe space to be extremely offensive because they think, well, she's a white girl, I'm a white guy, or I'm this and she's this. Um, so they say what's really on their mind. People show their true colors to me pretty often, which I guess is a blessing and a curse. I'd rather know your true colors. Yeah. I know if you're a piece of shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it does put me in a situation pretty often where it's like, 
wait, what did you just say? Oh, yeah, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> and I think that gives me, I think I am in general kind of confrontational person, but I think people then get this like really heightened idea of that, of me, um, or think, oh my God, she's like a social justice warrior, like, you know, she's woke or whatever. Ugh. Like just, you know, as if like I'm policing people for their language. No, or like PC police. No, none of that. None of that. But like there is an etiquette and there's a way obviously that you should treat people. And like, I'm obviously not, you want me to just sit there when you're being racist or like problematic. I'm not going to do that. Um, so I think in the classroom in that way, I've had to be a lot of times the person who's like, is no one else in the class going to say anything about that, about what that person just said? Um, but I think also my, it's my privilege that lets me do that. Obviously, if I was a black woman speaking the way I did, I'd be painted as angry constantly, right? <laughs> like constantly. Very so true. obviously I have the room to, even if I am angry, I have the room to come off that way and I won't be penalized. Like, um, you know, I won't, obviously, you know, we worked in the same housing department. I think you know that I was able to say a lot more than my black counterparts. Yeah. Uh, even if I was saying the exact same things as them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. one of them might get fired, whereas I wouldn't. Um, we saw that happen. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is what happened. So literally, what happened? Yeah. Um, and that's obviously a privilege of mine, but it's also just one of those things of um, it still shocks me when people do that. When people look at me and think I'm going to say something super racist, and she's going to agree with me, um, which really scares me about what happens in all white circles. Yeah. Uh, but I think it, as far as race, um, in my academic experience, like I mention my race does not impact hold me back in any way um in education uh being caucasian and being i guess asian kind of um obviously when we talk about like asian privilege in education that's usually east asian and i am not that but um in, in that sense i've never been held back educationally i've never had um a lack of access to resources i've never been um Professors have never assumed that I was not smart. Mm. Um, if they have, it's been on the grounds of me being a woman, but not, yeah, not my race. Um, but yeah, as far as like what that does for me in the classroom, it's just become a thing of, okay, when someone's being problematic, I'm gonna speak up. I have the privilege to speak up. Um, not a circumstance of where I'm speaking over anyone. I will only speak up if no one else is speaking. Um, but I also think it's interesting because Long Beach is a Hispanic serving institution um, and I'm Latina, um, but I will say that it's a Hispanic serving institution and I would, if anything, it's very uh, Mexican centric. That makes sense for Long Beach, that makes sense for Southern California. It's a Mexican population. So I'm, I'm not Mexican. Um, so there's not a lot of relatability there, <laughs> but I think that's one of the most interesting things also about experiencing racism at um, Long Beach. It's one of those, I once again do not experience it. I just see it happening um, pretty often. It's, I, I hope people are learning too that not just white people are racist. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to paint a broad rush about Latinos or Mexicans or anything like that. Um, but you do see anti-black racism um, from the Latin community often. Uh, you see anti-Black racism from the Asian community. You see anti-Latin or Latinx um, or Latin um, racism from everyone. You know, 
it, it's just, it works around. Obviously you can't be racist to white people, but everyone else is pretty racist to each other um, pretty regularly. And I think unless you're in a setting where you see a lot of people in color, like where there's a majority people of color, um, I think some people forget that. They think that it's like, oh, it's just white people who are racist. Like, no, I can call out anyone in the classroom who's being racist, you know? And I think anything for like professors to do better on that, it sucks that professors won't allow it, but they also wait for other students to call each other out. I think that's a little weird sometimes. Um, I understand it's to hold your peers accountable, but I will say that has frustrated me time and time again. I've had to talk to professors about that. Of if you're gonna be like the moderator of this discussion or the authority in this space, like supposed authority, mm -hmm. act like it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't wanna speak too long about like race and its impact on me. Yeah. I have a ton of privilege there. Yeah, no, but that's, I think that's important too. Cause I think, you know, it's important for people to hear that as well. Like you can be someone who has not been impacted like in terms of like negatively by their race in the classroom, but still notice like how race in the classroom is impacting other people. Uh, yeah, and you can, obviously you can see it. You can see it when it's happening. Like I don't know when people, people who don't really think racism is a thing or that institutional racism doesn't exist. I personally don't, I have a really hard time understanding where people are coming from when they say that, just because you can see it. Yeah. You can physically see it happening sometimes. Very obvious. Um, but maybe that's just people being naive, I'm not sure. It's, I think it's a, a combination of things, right? And so I'll touch on two things that you've mentioned, right? Um, from the professor standpoint, right? Yeah. Um, for me, because of my identities and stuff like that, I make it kind of my obligation to facilitate that kind of space because I understand what it's like to be the student in that situation and be like, so nobody else is. No one's gonna stick up for me. <laughs> uh, so y'all didn't hear that, right? And <laughs> so like, I mentioned it in like, I think one of the first podcast episodes that I had. Um, and it's like, I had a, a professor who like, you know, would microaggress students and stuff like that. Or students will microaggress each other. And professors would just watch and be like, oh, if the student doesn't bring it up to me, I'm not gonna facilitate that. And it's like, no, like as a professor and as educators, we have to make it our, like if we, if we are going to be facilitating this space to make sure that students all feel supported, that students are all learning, that there's always teachable moments and mistakes and stuff, we have to be willing to jump into every single situation, even the ones that we are uncomfortable addressing. Because I can tell you now, if there's a, an issue of race in the classroom, easy. I, there's no, I can, ooh, let's talk about this. I don't give a fuck what I was talking about. <laughs> let's talk about this situation right here. But if there's a situation that happens around like gender and stuff like that, I'm less likely or less comfortable just because I don't want my privilege in that space to be dominating. So I understand that there's some hesitancy, but there shouldn't be it to the point where you don't address it as a faculty, staff, educator. Um, and then being the student, right? Um, I think that Right, I can commend you on you know feeling that it's partly a part of your responsibility to say some shit, right? Especially knowing that you do have the privilege to not say anything and nothing will happen to you. Yeah. Uh, for me, um, in my undergrad, um, there wasn't a lot of conversations revolving around race um, at first. Um, I went to Humboldt State, so really, oh. I you know. <laughs> 
really white, <laughs> very liberal, but also very like all lives mattery. Um, and so like it's white liberals. <laughs> oh, it's super white liberals who consider themselves hippies and consider themselves all these other different things that I I fail to understand. But I remember um, I started going to Humble State around the first kind of big national um, thing that happened was Trayvon Martin, right? Yeah. And I remember having conversations with, with students and all these different things about it. And most people that I had conversations with were like, yeah, this is very unfortunate racism, all that stuff. Then Mike Brown happened. People were very different in that space. It was very, that's where I started to see the whole all lives matter, black lives matter divide. That was the first time. I remember, I remember exactly when that started. I remember where I was. <laughs> like, I remember the first conversation I had about it because it was a shift, right? It, it was, was literally, it went from like racism exists and this shouldn't happen to like, no, police are trying to do their job. Sometimes it's okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I was in Texas for Thanksgiving break. I remember when that happened and Ferguson started going off. Yeah. And I remember I went um, to the dinner table with my family and I read on the news 580, because um, I'm in the Bay Area, 580 is the freeway here, um, was shut down because protesters were going to walk on it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember my family immediately being like, shutting down a freeway? D no, bad. <laughs> Good cause, bad idea. Yeah. And that was the first time that I was like, oh no, like people really care about themselves more. Yeah. And it's not even like, like I'm, I'm can't relate to people who are like, I have racist family members. My family's so racist, but I'm not, uh, can't relate. But like, I think those are that, I think that in itself was like a microaggression that I was like, okay, <laughs> do you really think this freeway can't stop for a couple hours? Yeah. Because someone was shot like dozens of times um and I think that's the first time that I started realizing like even that is a form of microaggression and like how people respond to protests I think is a big flag of like what they are yeah. um but yeah I, I like you said I remember the exact moment that split and I was in high school when that happened um you even saw it at the high school level yeah. these were kids we were kids arguing with each other about this yeah it was wild <laughs> and it, it was to the point where like it was so weird for me because I was already losing a part of my identity being in that white space for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I found myself confused a lot of the times being like, damn, like these are people who I've had conversations with and who understand racism like happens and understand that people should not be treated with respect and all that stuff. But they're also on the other side of like, well, why did he run or why did he was he committing a crime and all these different things and I found that divide and started to really realize that and so I thought oh this is going to be conversations in the classroom for sure but it wasn't conversations in the classroom there was campus-wide conversations that were held by BSU and other black organizations but there was never I never had a teacher go so like these things are happening around the world how do people feel about it? nothing never um and I so that wasn't even remotely a conversation, but I know that like, when we're talking about like social justice issues and those happening in the classroom. The one time in my undergrad that I know that we talked about social justice a little bit, um, I took a psychology of women class and mm -hmm. 
uh, the first day, one of the dudes out of the five dudes that were in there, it was like a hundred people in there. Uh, one of the dudes was all like, why isn't there a psych of men class? And then I remember for about 45 minutes, everybody kind of just had a discussion about like how privileged men are. And I was just like, why would you say that in this space? Like, out of all spaces, you're gonna <laughs> look around the room, gauge your con like gauge it. Like, even if you are just like ignorant and don't understand that, I was like, why why would there need to be any class centered around men when everything is centered around men? It's yeah. just like saying, like, why would we have a class around white history when like everything yeah. is white history? That is history. And, yeah. <laughs> That's the history we're done. Like, and so like. So for me, like undergrad, like there was no, none of those conversations in the class. Now, when I was in community college, yes, we had those conversations, yeah. but I think it was different because there was an expectation already that everybody was older. It was like, oh, we're older. We can have these mature conversations. And then I, when I went to Humboldt, I was having class with like 18 and 19 year olds who were from like very privileged backgrounds and we're like, well, I couldn't get into Santa Clara so or Santa Cruz, so I went to Humboldt, which was pretty much the same. And I would bring up these conversations with them in the classes that I went, and I was a psych major, and they would just be like, what? This is happening in the world? And I'd be like, why aren't we talking about these things in the class? Um, and so like, I'm glad to hear that at least you have these conversations in your classes. Now, to say that they go well or not, that's not, you know. That's they have like room to grow, you know? So like I said, I heard BLM for the first time in 20, I wanna say that was 2015, if not it was 2014. Mm -hmm. So I was in my sophomore, junior year of high school. Um, and I'm from the Bay Area, extremely liberal place, um, very diverse place. Um, so my high school's response like immediately was the BSU started doing a weekly die-in, you know, we're all black, go lay in the quad for lunch every week. Like that, this was the space I was in. So for me, I was like, this is super normal. Mm -hmm. You know, history professors would talk about that thing. It was mostly focused on the history professors. But I remember when Freddie Gray died, my Spanish professor or teacher, um, <laughs> she couldn't, she was like, okay, this is what class is gonna be about today. We're gonna talk about Freddie Gray. Like it was a, I think it was a great space to be in um, at the time. And so when I did come to Long Beach, I was a little surprised at first. It seems like I think with the GEs, professors like to play it more safe. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had many professors admit openly that they will not share personal ideas in the classroom because they are afraid of being recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, even if they have what I think are great ideas, it sucks. It really sucks that they are afraid of being canceled, fired, whatever. Yeah, um, real, very real possibility. So I remember at first I was like, oh, I thought they were going to be more open in college. Like, cause in some ways they were, they were like cursing and didn't really care about things. And I was like, whoa. That's awesome. But then in some ways they were a step back for me in my experience. I was like, oh, you guys don't talk about these things. Um, but as I started to go further in my majors, those conversations were happening and it was great. But I think there's still obviously a way to go. Like I remember it was really great. This political theory class I took last semester. So starting in January of this year, um, the professor ended up being a total anarchist and I loved it. I, I had an assumption of anarchist, like, being an anarchist, I had a perception in my head of like, set everything on fire and like no rules, but that's not what it is at all. Like reading anarchist theory is incredible. It's incredible. Um, but anyway, so I remember one day he decided to start the class by posing the question, are police good or bad? You know, do we need them? 
do we need rules and do we need police? Um, Cause it was a theory class. So obviously you have to ponder these things. And I remember saying in like January or February, I remember cause I, there was like a mutiny in the class when I said it, I said, I don't think there should be police. I said, they should be abolished. And I said, I know that I am privileged and that I grew up in a place where, well, first of all, my town is unincorporated. So there are no police. There's a sheriff's department and there are only sheriffs, but there are no police. They are county, county sheriffs. Um, so their presence is primarily highway patrol and then some sheriffs. And then my um, high school had a police department and a police presence. So I, I know that I grew up privileged in a, in a way that they weren't a constant thing in my life. Not really. Like, yes, I saw them every day, but it, their presence in this town is known for like highway patrol type stuff <laughs> or catching kids smoking weed. That's about it. Um, <laughs> a lot, a lot of car chases from Oakland end in my town. I don't know why they, it's just the place where they like to get off the freeway um, that started in Oakland. So that's their main function. Um, so I, I, I tried to say, you know, I've, I'm, I know I'm very privileged in thinking that, you know, my life personally wouldn't be all that much different yeah. um, if the police were abolished. But I started to get into it too, of the obvious things that have become the discourse now. Like, I wish I could meet with that class now and be like, what do you guys think now? Because I remember they were furious, furious. This class had one black student, bunch of white and Latino students. Um, I think I was the only Asian student and a white male professor. The professor was the only person who agreed with me. Everyone else, furious. <laughs> and it was, it was so interesting because like I said, look where we are now. Police abolition is actually like something people are allowed to talk about now. Um, but that's one of those things where I was like, I thought we were a little further than we are. Mm. But as soon as we said that, I had like a reality check of, oh, even these people who are saying Black Lives Matter, even these people who are saying fuck the police, these people who are about it, no. Because the first time they're confronted with the idea of what if there was none? And it's not, but police abolition doesn't equate no justice. It doesn't equate um, no safety, no mm -hmm. protection. It doesn't equate that. I think people, obviously their first thought is, wait, what? Now what? But um, the, the very first time I think that people had to think about that, I remember being like, whoa, first of all, you guys haven't thought about this before. <laughs> you guys still like them? Especially because every time, the few times I've ever had to call the police in my life, thank God it's been very few times they didn't bring any help yep. nothing helped it, the, the circumstance didn't change uh, I'm lucky in that obviously it didn't change that it didn't end fatally or anything but there was nothing added to the situation you know nothing helped um so that's one of those things of like yes I think undergrad discussions right now especially in the liberal arts college at least they are centered around race there's a lot of good talks happening but I also think they're some not so great talks happening. And I also think there are a lot of professors speaking on things they shouldn't be. Um, a lot of professors being comfortable talking about experiences or communities that they don't belong to. Um, so maybe there's some improvement, but I also obviously can't speak on Humboldt. <laughs> like that's a very different community. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, with Humboldt, Humboldt is a very, uh, I would say it's a protected in the sense that like they have a very diverse faculty pool um but i would also say that like they also have a history of doing some shady shit too um 
you know, when I was going to Humble, you know, a huge focus was on our native populations because there are a lot of indigenous people there. Um, and I remember a particular person was fired. And if you Google it, she got a pretty, pretty large sum of money because of <laughs> being fired because of her identities. And <laughs> so like there's some, there's definitely some some issues. Shout out to her for winning some money, but like you know, she was the only, you know, staff member out here supporting native populations and stuff. But that to say, um, you know, to backtrack to like some of the things that you said, right? Um, that is one of the things that professors really do have to understand and that that's a, a big fear, right? Because I didn't understand it until I became on this side, right? Yeah. Like, oh, it is a big fear for some people that they're going to lose their job for voicing their opinions. Like, and it's a real, it is a real risk. It's, yeah. it's not, you know, some, it's scary. Like, yeah, crazy fear to have. Like, I'm like, oh shit, like y'all for real scared. And mm -hmm. that's the, I think that's the difference with staff of color, particularly faculty of color. Our lives are risked every day we come yeah. to work. So exactly. like, I don't necessarily have that like fear of like, fuck it, I'm gonna say it. Like, mm -hmm. as long as I don't say the N word, right? I think I'm solid <laughs> like well you know when I said at the beginning that you were the first time I saw someone speak about race and social justice type issues in a professional space yeah. that's why because you were obviously it's not like you cannot talk about it yeah it's, it's impossible these <laughs> issues affect you every single day but I remember when you did I was like wait what you're allowed to talk about that especially because like if teachers in high school yes they would talk about BLM and stuff sometimes but they still had to be very careful and they wouldn't talk about many other issues, you know? And again, tiptoeing, walking very carefully around what they say. Um, and I had this idea of the workplace. I had worked at a government office before I worked in housing. And it was just, I wasn't told that explicitly, but it was just assumed I was the only intern there and everyone else was much older than me. They never talked about politics. They never talked about social issues. Nope. <laughs> um, and I think that's a big thing. I think that's a really big thing. I really like what you're saying here, like where you're going with this. Because obviously, professors of color, staff of color, administrators of color. Every day is like... How could you not? <laughs> like, I, I, and it's the same thing with housing. I did a really good job of like masking a lot of the things that I was experiencing while I worked there. And I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of things that I experienced when I was in RC, but like every day was like, every time I opened my mouth, I knew another conversation was going to be had somewhere with <laughs> professionals about like, is he okay to say that? It's, it's like, I'm like, why not? It's not problematic. I'm not telling them this is what I believe. I don't know how housing culture was before you came in. Oh, um, but it was when I, I came back. <laughs> and it obviously wasn't all down to you. There was other people involved, other people, you know, right up there with you. But I, I think I have to thank you for that, especially because, you know, housing was really crazy that year that I came in. Mm -hmm. A lot happened. A lot of really unfair things took place. Mm -hmm. And I used your name pretty often when things were going out of line. I'd be like, mm, okay, I, don't, I know Jaquiel started this conversation last year and I'm gonna keep it going now. And this would happen at all staffs and things like that. 
Um, so I appreciate oh. you doing that. Oh, I got a lot of text messages. Trust me. <laughs> I got a lot. Of, I got a lot of, who would you kill? Can you believe? I'm like, hey, I don't work there no more. Uh, well, I mean, they, they've made social justice a big part of their training, at least biggish, a big part of their messaging, supposedly what they care about. So, I mean, obviously some work was done there and some of it, they decided to go the complete opposite direction of exactly what they were told to do. Um, so I, I do have to thank you for that. And I think moving forward in professional spaces, because I've obviously worked places since housing, yeah. um, it's cool to carry that to other places. And I think housing is the only place I've worked that's been like an absolute, if I, I really don't care about Long Beach housing, an absolute shit show. Um, that's the only place I've worked where it's been like extremely problematic to work there, constantly being devalued as a worker. Um, but so I haven't had to take it to such extremes at my other jobs, but I've been thankful that I've been able to have these conversations at other places. Um, I did intern with my member of Congress um, right after I worked in housing. And it was really cool to feel comfortable in a place very professional like that, very like a federal workspace um, and bring some of those conversations with me. It obviously didn't have the it's not like housing where you just have the time to have these like staff meetings where you talk about everything. Like, no, there's no time for that, but to implement these things. And, you know, I don't know what to call it because, okay, it's racism, but it doesn't have to do with race. The most discrimination I face is when people are talking about Middle Eastern people and Muslims and Afghans. That's a big part of my identity. That's where people get the most problematic around me. And because of these conversations that you started in housing and conversations we've had together, I've been able to like, I've always been able to stick up for myself, but probably a little bit better. Um, and again, more professionally with things like that. Cause I think it's obviously we're a very small minority in the United States, um, this part of the world in general. So I think it's kind of brush over in, in that sense. I think I've faced some like discrimination light <laughs> again, because I'm white, <laughs> but in that, and because people don't look at me and think, oh, she's Muslim. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do have to thank you for that. Because <laughs> um, I know we've had <clears throat> we've had con we've had conversations about certain people, and um, you know, in housing or college council, particularly, who have said things, and you know, we've had those conversations before. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's all. I think that's a big part of uh, why I still work in education. And um, while I don't work in housing anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think both. <laughs> that was that was like a big part of like my purpose there and I know um, you didn't get to kind of experience what it was like to, as me as an RC and things like that other than you know college council but I know that like you know and not to you know uh, sound narcissistic or anything like that but I am going to toot my own horn I did have a strong impact on housing at Long Beach because I wasn't like a lot of previous RCs before. Um, and I loved my RC group that I had with me. You know, shout out to all of them. Some of them are still my closest friends. Um, I loved the ACs that I had, Juan and Melinda, they were amazing um, and allowed me the space to do a lot of the things that I do, even though I know they got shit for it. And I know that there was probably a conversation about firing me on a regular basis, but that's whatever. And I know that like, you know, my whole goal is like, if 
we are housing professionals, and this is going to tie into my next point. We are housing professionals, whether you're an RA, whether you're an RC, whether you're an AC, whether you're above. We're housing professionals. We get way more training than police officers get in terms of dealing with yes. situations. Yes. I remember <laughs> thinking that during RA training, I was like, I am extremely well trained in de-escalation. I am confident that there are so many scenarios I could handle over a police officer, whether that's something as wild as a school shooting, yep. something as wild as you are, you are suicide prevention trained. And we see circumstances in which that has happened in housing where university police has been right there and a root of the problem um, with drug issues or with uh, drug use, all these things. I think that's a great point. And I think if anything, the training in housing, because for example, when you're gonna be an RA, they train you for like two weeks, a couple of weeks. That may sound like a lot, but it's not. Mm-mm. And you learn so much in that short period of time. Imagine if everyone in communities was being trained like that, how yep. much we could get done, how much healthier people there would be, especially in better training than yep. what we've received. Like, I think that's a huge part of like, the educating we're doing right now. It's not just reading theory. It's not just how to listen to people. It's how to do. And yep. it's a big part of what's going on right now. Like, I, like, like you know, despite everything that happened in housing, I'm so thankful for specifically the like restorative justice type style things I learned in housing and de-escalation things I learned in housing. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, to the, I would say um, like housing did teach me, a lot. like I would go back to a housing job under the right circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I was just in a housing job literally like last semester. So like, <laughs> it's not like housing is something that I hate, right? Yeah. I hate some parts of housing, especially like the politics of housing and stuff like that. But I, I do cherish being able to support students, especially in that pivotal moment. Like these, this is housing people, that's home security right there, right? And so being able to support students and make sure that they don't get kicked out and all these different things, make sure that whatever behavior that they're doing, the growth, all that good stuff. Um, but all the training that uh, I went through in housing and stuff like that, I think really benefited me. The biggest thing that I I always tell people, and it's always a surprise to people, when I worked at Long Beach, I didn't have any training. (laughs) Zero. Zero. I went to no RC training because my paperwork was all messed up. I don't think my RC did either when I was (laughs) (laughs) there. But like zero training. Yeah. And people never understood that. And I would tell them like, I'm dealing with all these situations, being on call, not being on call, helping students, and I had no training. Mm-hmm. So like understanding that impact now, and then now the training that I was able to provide, right? I think we brought a layer of social justice training to, to like the recruitment process for RAs and stuff like that. And so like, we were like, you know, like it's great that we get to train our RAs and stuff, but like, what about the people who want to be RAs and not everybody's gonna get but they're gonna get some type of workshop out of it. They're gonna get some type of, yeah. And that's, I think that's really important to, to, to note. Um, so yes, that's important. And so to go all the way back to your point, right? Cause you know, that's just how conversations work with Jaquil. I just connect everything. Um, back to the point about police abolition, right? I think that like a lot of people are very confused about what that looks like and what that means is because they've never thought about it, like you mentioned, but it's also because people have been been socialized and taught to like hold police officers to such a high regard that they're not capable Mm 
making mistakes or they're not capable of being racist or capable of being discriminatory. But we can say the same thing about teachers. Like you can say teachers are racist, but you can't say that police officers are. Our job titles are drastically different, but we still control people's path and people's growth and people's- yeah, And they have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, and it's the whole, I think it's the so, so interesting because the same conversation with defund the police. So many people are, I, I've had so many arguments and stuff and this is a drastically different topic and we could talk about that for hours and hours about defund the police. But I've had so many conversations with people saying like, look at what LA, now what LAPD and has doing is doing now. They have to get rid of their sexual assault crimes division. And I'm like, you need yeah. to understand, this is, what I, this is what I tell people. Defund the police is exactly what it sounds like. It's limit, exactly what it says it is. <laughs> limit funding to certain like to certain yeah. areas that don't need that funding. Put yeah. more weapons. Put that funding towards something else. Yeah. And the other thing when it comes to defunding the police, when you get rid of a budget, right? It's up to that department to figure out how to use that budget. So if they cut sexual crimes, that's that police department not prioritizing sexual crimes, yeah. not as a result yeah. of the money being gone. You can reallocate. So they think that having better guns is more important than analysis for sexual crimes that they don't even deal with properly anyways, because DNA sucks, because they don't know how to talk to people who are victims of sexual assault. They don't care. Like they don't believe people and stuff like that. And unfortunately, women are like negatively impacted more than men. And we all know that both gender mm -hmm. identities and across the gender spectrum sexual assault happens, but we also understand that women have a elevated sense of fear regarding these things because if that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be so many weapons and AKA self-defense items created specifically for women. Um, so that's just a whole nother tangent. But um, I think, you know, you brought up a lot of good shit in, in, this, in this conversation. And so uh, I think that uh, one of the things that I do want to leave our, uh, lovely listeners on um, is just like, what recommendations do you have for just schools or professors? You choose which way you wanna go with that um, and just supporting students of color um, a little bit in their academic journeys. And if you need time to think about that, I can talk about what my recommendations are. Yeah, maybe you get started. Okay, um, so for me, I think one of the biggest things, and this is me coming from the perspective as a former student, oh, I can say that now, um, and as a current educator is like, um, not every faculty member cares and understanding that and institutions don't do a good job in hiring faculty members who care about other people. <laughs> um, and so- We're encouraging that. Yeah, and so one of my, I got three big recommendations, one being we have to embed like social issues, social justice into curriculum. That's not just in the sociology departments, <laughs> the political science departments, all right? It has to be embedded into every single GE, every single major, because everybody's going to deal with people in their lives. That's like one of the biggest recommendations that I have. Another one I think is the way that we deal with like situations is always reactive institutions are always waiting for shit to happen in order to respond. So they're always all like, oh, we got abortion people on campus, now we'll react instead of being proactive about it and being like, so we have these things put in place, right? For situations to, to deal with and 
we have these people to contact, we have all these different things to deal with these issues, right? Because we know that there is a population of people who are going to be upset about it and a population of people who support it. So we have to facilitate that conversation in a positive way instead of reacting to the people who are upset about it or reacting to the people who aren't upset about it. We have to be able to facilitate that. And then my last recommendation is literally alludes to that first point, diversify your goddamn hiring practices because there should be no reason why there aren't black faculty, brown faculty, why there aren't more faculty in different departments. I, I get so thrown off when I go to like a school or go to like a job or when I do consulting work for institutions and stuff and I ask them about their faculty dynamics and they're like, oh, we got one black person in English. We got one black person in history, but he doesn't teach African-American history. Somebody else does. And you're just, I'm just like, what the hell? How does this even make sense to you all? Mm -hmm. If you diversify your hiring practices and that's not saying to tokenize people and just be like, oh, no, you're a engineer, hire them. It's like, no, like you have to provide opportunities and broadcast like these opportunities for everyone. So you know that there's initiatives taken on institutions to make sure that there's like more women in STEM, more black people in STEM, more black people in these departments that aren't typically sociology, psychology, your basic stuff. So you diversify that by providing opportunities and stuff like that. And when you see representation, right, we know that if I'm a black faculty member and I got black people in my class, they're comfortable. They're like, oh shit, I could be a faculty one day. And yeah. that's important. I think those are my three recommendations. It's like doing those things won't solve your institutional racism problem, but it will help students feel more supported on campus to navigate institutional fucking racism mm -hmm. or provide them with a space to deal with it. Um, but there's a lot of recommendations. I, I say we just burn down schools in general and just start teaching people out of the backyards of our uh, our houses. But that's just me. <laughs> but, I think I think there's a lot to what you said, and I I think you know diversification is a huge part of that. Um, not only at the hiring level because that part is crucial. Um, diversification of curriculum and honestly diversification of admissions. Mm. It's so unfortunate that affirmative action failed um, on the ballot last month. Ooh, I was like, what? Who's opposing this shit? By a lot. That was extremely disappointing. That was like one of the biggest hits from election night that I was like, I thought better of everyone. But because if you have a more diverse student body, more happens, more conversations happen, more gets done. You have higher achievement. Like, I don't know what's stopping these institutions. I don't know why they can't implement it themselves. Um, it's totally fine for the CSUs to decide that we are going to implement affirmative action, but no. Racism. We'll state tells us, exactly. Um, I think that's a huge part of it. I will say as far as like diversification, I'm taking a Middle Eastern studies class for the first time this semester and it's taught by a Middle Eastern professor and like the joy that brings me every single day. Um, I think that's my first time having a Middle Eastern educator at all. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's but not only is he extremely intelligent, but like it feels so good to be able to talk about like us, like and it's an us, it's not a they. Cause that, especially as a Middle Eastern person, we are always a they in the United States. It feels so good to be an us. And I can only imagine how that feels often. I still get excited, even, even though apparently the majority of teachers are women or professors. I, lately I've been having way more male professors. Um, it still feels good when a woman is teaching me. 
Um, I had very few Latina educators, but when I've had them, it's been a great time. And like, these, obviously these people are intelligent. Like you said, they, they're not tokens at all. Yeah. Um, but it feels really good when you do have someone, especially in like, I think in focus studies, I really think it's like pretty inappropriate to have, like I would have been upset if my Middle Eastern studies professor was not Middle Eastern. Mm. Um, that's something that I struggle with a lot in political science, honestly. Um, if that's where I face it, if I face any discrimination in education, it's professors who research Latin America or research Middle East and maybe even live there and decided that they know more than me. And maybe they do in some regards. I've never lived in the Middle East. So maybe they have more experience in that regard. But at the end of the day, don't ever tell me how I feel. Yeah, people can do all the research they want, but at the end of the day, you're not it. Like, yeah, just, <laughs> and it's not, it's not to say you can't study communities you're not a part of. That's fine. You can go conduct your research anywhere in the world. Um, just be mindful, I think. Um, I think another thing that helps universities or something that I'm thankful that happens is people within communities doing, you know, incentivizing and doing outreach and representation, like I'm kind of alluding here, matters a lot. Mm -hmm. um, like something I know that a lot of the black organizations on our campus do, specifically the black fraternities and sororities, is they'll go to like high schools, middle schools um, in the Long Beach area and try to get them like committed to going to college one day, mm -hmm. you know, like, and we're gonna make this path and we're gonna make it fun for you. And we're gonna make this like a big goal for you. Um, I think that's a big part of what needs to continue to happen and it shouldn't have to come down to these orgs choosing to do this. Um, and then I think an, another thing is that makes a big difference that I think professors are really afraid to do because it might be controversial, but every professor or teacher that I've had who's done this has ended up being one of my favorites. If you start your class, uh, first of all, maybe by doing a check-in with how everyone's doing, but also talking about current events. Mm -hmm. I think teachers and professors who are not like history teachers, not sociology teachers, or professors they think they don't have to or that it's a waste of class time almost always you can apply that to something in the curriculum or something in the coursework but if you start your day by talking about what's going on in the world because guaranteed your opinion your students have opinions on it and have thoughts about it and the amount of times i'm sure you can relate the amount of times you've walked into the classroom and been like why am i supposed to focus on this today like i earlier this semester i was having a really hard time because i'm in the bay area and we were on fire and the sky was red and i was sitting in class like why am I learning about China's economic policy right now? <laughs> like, yes, it's a big deal, but I do not care right now that I can't breathe. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it, it, and I think if the few, I had one professor who asked, do any of you live in the Bay Area? Are you guys okay? And I was like, because you asked, I'm okay. I'm fine now. And that made all the difference for me, all the difference. And that was the only coursework I did that day because I felt super neglected by my other professors didn't <laughs> or you know these professors with the pandemic who continuous continuously ask how's everyone doing are you safe are you healthy yeah they stand out more i think that's a huge that's something that will actually make a positive impact in education especially because then for example when i was protesting this summer that was another time where i did not want to be focusing on my finals yeah. it was a little busy um <laughs> that that helps yeah. i think that helps even if it's a small impact even if it feels like a a time waster even if it sometimes brings up challenging conversations, those conversations are important to have. <laughs> they are. I, I think they are. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, they, they're just fucking important. Uh, it's, I think that's one of the things that I do as an educator is just 
no matter if things are going on in the world or not, it's just checking in with my students. It's like, I know they got lives that are drastically different than mine. They may have trauma and all these different experiences that they have. And so it's just literally just, be, I'm like, how are you living? And they just are like, not great. And I'm like, all right, well, let's focus on that and not focus on this 10 page paper that I'm about to assign your ass. So it's like, and I feel like students perform better when you do that. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're always all like, look, like I'd rather my student, you know, not do an assignment for a reason that they had to work on something like themselves <laughs> or their living situation um, and be like, you know what, turn it in whenever you can. And if you don't get to be able to turn it in, just turn in what you have and I'll grade it with a grain of salt, you know? And then also just being, I think being available and, and honest and telling students like, you feel that shit, I feel that shit too. Like when people- yeah. And then conveying your own emotions. I, I think professors think that they can't, please, like, please bring that forward. Please, like, make that a trend or whatever, because it's, the professors make all the difference when they're honest, when they're like, hey, I'm really scared right now, too. First of all, that's validation. Second of all, it's like, okay, we address we're all scared or we're all safe. Now let's focus on the lecture. Yeah. That helps so much. <laughs> really I think that that's really important. And um, you all heard it here. Ari said, stop being robots to all the faculty members in the world. <laughs> no emotions and talk about your experiences. But um, to not make this a five-hour uh, podcast episode. Know, uh, <laughs> no, it's completely okay. Uh, I enjoy these conversations. I really do. Um, but is there any lasting things you would like the people to know, uh, whether that's um, Instagram stuff, whether that's life stuff, whether that's get involved, whatever? Anything you want the people to know? Um, wear your mask, please. <laughs> Stay home if you can, if you have the privilege to. Mm -hmm. If you have the funds, please donate to your local food bank. It's really tough times right now. Um, you can find me on socials at Ariana Fizey on most things. But yeah. <laughs> cool. I'll put um, that information into the description. I'll probably forget, so I'll probably have to ask you. But... Uh, <laughs> but um this has been another episode of tell me about it with jaquil uh and for the next time bye people